Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie Weissman, the editor here at Modern Retail, and I'm joined here with Duncan Blair, the director of marketing at Article Furniture. How's it going, Duncan? Really good. Thanks, Cale. Thanks for joining. Uh, I'm excited to chat to sort of a, about what it's like being uh, a DTC furniture company nowadays, but also just I, I imagine you guys have experienced some interesting changes in the overall atmosphere, both as a marketer and a DTC brand, and I want to get into that. But first, you've been at Article for a while, right? Yeah, nearly five years now. Wow. So what? how would you describe your overall strategy over the last few years? Because you've seen, I mean, the, the quote-unquote direct-to-consumer space has changed a lot since 2016. So what is, you know, how have you sort of formulated your overall marketing thesis, I guess? Yeah, over those five years, we've really taken the position that we need to build confidence with customers. When you're asking someone to buy, you know, a $2,000 sofa without sort of sitting on it or touching it or feeling it, it's it's really about how can we get over that that barrier of of, of trust or confidence with customers, and that's sort of been the underlying uh, or yeah central thesis of our of our marketing strategy over those five years. So we look at how can we uh, both you know reach people and, and make them comfortable with the brand, but also then how can we reinforce uh, sort of that that decision through the through the whole purchasing journey from sort of where you start thinking about the sofa through to when you uh, hit that hit that buy button. Has there been, was it a bigger hurdle at first? Sort of how has that convincing process changed? Yeah, sort of leaving aside for a second the, the uh, craziness of the last sort of three, or, <laughs> three or four months. Yeah, we'll get into um, that soon. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it certainly has, the market is shifting, obviously, uh, over that time as well. And, and as uh, sort of more and more commerce shifts online. People do get more comfortable with those those larger purchases. However, it's pretty sort of uh, slow and incremental. So uh, the the much bigger strides have come on. I think that the interventions that we've made and the, the things that we've done to help help build that confidence over time. Uh, again, both at really uh, all stages of the of the consumer journey. Mm-hmm. What I mean. So, what would you say? Is it just sort of being hyper communicative? customer reviews sort of what are how how can you get someone to actually say i feel comfortable spending two thousand dollars on a sofa if i've never sat in it yeah there are a number of ways i guess so first first and foremost is being familiar with the brand so it's it's obviously much more daunting to to buy from a brand you've never heard of than it is one that uh you know, you, you sort of know, and uh, that helps get over that trust barrier. So we've been sort of slowly moving our uh, marketing spend further up funnel, if you like, uh, and focusing more on how do we reach people sort of earlier or, or bef- even before they uh, start that, you know, make that decision, I need a couch or I need a table or uh, whatever, whatever the thing is that they're buying. So that's, you know, led to investments in podcasts and TV and, and some of the things that aren't necessarily sort of intent-driven channels. And we're, we're sort of investing more of our budget at, at that. Uh, over those those five years, we've ended up investing more, a greater percentage of our budget further up in those channels. Interesting. Can you talk? So we did a, a story, I want to say last November on Modern Retail, where, and I think my colleague Anna spoke with you about it, that talked about the rise of direct mail as an interesting sort of marketing funnel. Um, and I and mail is different than TV and podcasting, but they all sort of have their own idiosyncrasies when it comes to attribution and like figuring out 
figuring out when they you actually get uh, sort of a return on investment. So how how are you approaching that specifically for these more uh, top of funnel things? You know, when when you're talking to you're spending a lot of money on TV. How, how, what is your overall philosophy when it comes to figuring out if it's actually working? Is it just sort of as sales go down the line? What, what, what is your thought around that? Yeah, ultimately, we look at our marketing mix really holistically. So rather than, I, I think you can get really bogged down in, in figuring out, you know, is any one kind of component working? We obviously look at, uh, look at the performance of each channel to the best of our abilities and, and some things like uh, TV, uh, less so direct mail, but, but certainly TV are, are quite challenging to, to figure out. Um, we do have an in-house data science team who, who are great at helping us uh, kind of figure out some of those pro- proxy measures and, and trying to figure out, you know, is, is what we're doing, uh, whether it's in a specific geography or uh, trying, to, trying to sort of parse out the, uh, the intervention that we're making, I guess, from the sort of the general background noise and figure out, yeah, is what we're doing working? But um, again, we sort of look at that because a furniture purchase journey is rarely sort of a, you know, a click on and mm-hmm. add and purchase it, you know, 15 minutes later kind of kind of purchase. We really take a, a, that holistic view of how do we, how can we figure out if we're, you know, introducing people to the brand successfully? How do we then ensure that we're sort of reaching them during that, that buying journey, both, you know, early on when they're trying to figure out exactly, you know, what, what kind of sofa do they want right through to the uh, sort of very bottom funnel stuff where it's like direct comparison shopping and some of the sort of very like tactical uh, hands-on about to push the buy button kind of, kind of spot. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts, you know, just in terms of that with discounts, I feel like that's, you know, a play that a lot of players are doing. It sometimes seems like a, a race to the bottom, which, you know, uh, how, how do you, do you do it at all? How do you approach that? We've really conscientiously attempted to stay away from discounts as much as possible. So, uh, you know, unlike I think a lot of uh, certainly e-commerce brands and uh, or e-commerce retailers, we, we don't have things like, you know, sign up for an email list and get a first purchase to discount or, or anything like that. We really focus on delivering uh, a little bit cheesy, but sort of <laughs> everyday value, you know, like we, we try to price our products aggressively. Uh, and you know that's a big part of the value proposition for us is that you're going to get, uh, you know, either the same quality item that you'd get at traditional retail at a better price, or you know, a better quality item for the same price. So, for us, we we really kind of build that into the the business, if you like. Uh, so for us, discounting hasn't been a, a big. It's not a big lever for us. We do use discounts from time to time, primarily as a if you like an inventory uh, control mechanism. So if we, basically if we end up with too much of something, uh, we'll, we'll try to discount it to, to sort of balance our stock levels. But by and large, you won't see uh, sort of like site-wide sales or, uh, you know, heavy discounting for, or heavy blanket discounting on our site. Absolutely. So let's like, we'll, we'll go into everything that's happened the last few months in one second, but what would you say, what was the overall marketing mix, say, pre-March? What, 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 you know, you said you were looking more at top of funnel with ads, like about how much were you spending where? So we were spending across, you know, in a, in a fairly, I guess, even way uh, or even, distri- even distribution between the sort of, if you like, top of funnel channels and the bottom mm-hmm. of funnel channels, if you like. Uh, or, or not even channels, but uh, sort of even products within channels. So if you think about uh, kind of 
you know, targeted search as, as pretty bottom funnel, you know, brown leather sofa kind of thing as, as bottom we're spending, you know, down there in equal parts to the sort of, you know, podcast and uh, direct mail and some other things at the, at the top of funnel. And then sort of splitting things um, as much as possible across channels. So trying to, you know, in general, our sort of feeling is that the more uh, channels we can reach people through, the sort of the better. Um, and so we try to diversify our mix, both, both you know, top and bottom of funnel as much as possible. Absolutely. So then March hit, you know, a lot of, a lot of, craziness happened what what did you sort of experience both on the demand side but that there was also a huge flip in what was happening specifically with digital marketing so how, how did you react to that yeah so from from march onward we really saw this incredible basically yeah surge in demand as exactly as you say and coupled with uh you know effectively us having this tremendous advantage in comparison to to our sort of traditional competitors uh, we didn't have we don't have a retail network. We don't have any stores, so there was we were really well positioned, I guess, to to uh, take advantage of the this kind of rush to for people to you know reconfigure their space and uh, think about you know the, the space they occupy. So the the biggest change we saw was just this yeah like I guess like overnight step change and some of those uh, those channel those bottom of funnel channels which really operate. You know more or less on demand signal, and so as you your the the amount of uh, demand in market goes up, you suddenly have uh, budgets going up as a result, like spending going up as a you know basically in lockstep with that. But we also saw uh, our activity get significantly more effective as well because people, you know, effectively had limited options at that time; they couldn't just go, you know go down to their local furniture store and buy something. So. We, we sort of saw this, I guess, um, perfect storm for us where not only were we, you know, we effectively reaching a whole lot more people who were super motivated to buy, but we also had this really compelling offering uh, for them because sort of the, the competitive landscape had shifted so radically. Did you, were there any specific no pun intended, articles of furniture that you were, that people were specifically looking for? Was there any surprises in terms of where demand was headed or was it just like everybody's home and I need chairs or, you know, what, 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 what was sort of the makeup with that? I mean, there were the, there were the obvious ones like uh, discs and chairs were, uh, were incredibly popular uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, I guess some of the, the more surprising or probably the, the most surprising thing, which, which makes perfect sense in hindsight, but uh, at the time was, was a bit surprising, was out, we had a huge outdoor season and continue to have a huge outdoor furniture season this year uh, with, I guess, um, you know, as people are spending more time, again, more time at home and, and less time sort of traveling or vacationing or at the beach or, you know, whatever, there's, there's uh, that outdoor space is really, you know, at a premium and so people are, figuring out how to make the most of it. And as a result, ordering a lot of patio furniture and, uh, and yeah, making the most of their outdoor space. Did any of this, like just seeing how people were glomming onto your products, that the fact there was this huge, steep increase of demand, did this change product development or put you, put you guys, you know, into any areas where you never thought you would be for, for down the line? Our product development process is, uh, fairly robust, I would say, and, and you know, typically they're looking twelve to eighteen months in, into the future. So, and you know, they're very deliberate about what products they go after. It did sort of 
make us reshuffle some of our priorities, I suppose. But there was no sort of wholesale, uh, you know, let's dive into a, a category that we're we're not in right now or anything. It was it was more a case of um, yeah, can can we prioritize? I mean, you know, particularly again, home office being such a such an important one. Can we accelerate some of our development in that area to get more product, more new product um, on the site? Uh, but but really. There was no sort of wholesale. Let's let's blow up the product development uh, lifecycle and 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 start again. Were were there like supply chain? I feel like a lot of the, the companies I've talked with, they they saw an increase in demand. They they saw sales go through the roof, loop go through the roof. But there were also a lot of delays because of just all the craziness that was going on. I know you guys have your own fulfillment center or fulfillment network, and I'd love to talk with you about that. But just sort of how did you deal with both? You know, were there more demands? How were you communicative with customers? How did you sort of handle the fact that you know there were many more people and that were that were looking for your products, but also it was much harder for them to actually get to their doors. I mean, the surge in demand did create uh, challenges, certainly on the supply side, mostly around forecasting. But mm-hmm. again, because of our business model and and the way that we've we've developed as a as a retailer and as a brand, it, we were fairly well positioned to handle those things. So while uh, there was, uh, you know perhaps longer delay than we would like on, on getting some of our stock in. We're really set up to, again, going back to that, you know, building confidence with customers, we're, we're really set up to be pretty transparent around, uh, you know, stock availability and things. So there's no uh, surprises that, that you're, you know, I know some people shopping on uh, some sites have that experience where you, you, you know, hit the buy button and then uh, you get the email and it's like, oh my God, it's going to be three months before I get this thing. We're really clear, uh, you know, before you even add anything to your cart that, that uh, you know, as your delivery time may, about what your delivery sort of time timeline is going to be. And so uh, we were really well positioned there. And then on, on the, I guess, like the fulfillment side, because we uh, own and operate our own fulfillment network, we were able to be uh, both flexible in the, the way that we sort of pivoted for to handle, uh, you know, contactless deliveries and things. But also, uh, we can say with reasonable confidence, uh, you know, what those what those delivery timelines are going to be, and, and we're you know constantly uh, there's a really tight feedback loop there, so that we're constantly updating those those estimated deliveries to make sure they're as, you know, exactly as accurate as possible. Can you talk a little about just sort of the history of the fulfillment network? Cause I think that that's a lot of, you know, that's a, a thing that I'm sure a lot of companies wish they had in place when March and April hit. And so it's, you know, I'm sure it was very expensive to build out and figure out exactly how you went about it. Sort of, well, what made you realize as a company that this was the best way specifically, you know, Given that you know other other companies choose choose a lot of different routes when it comes to fulfillment, as you might imagine for uh, for furniture, it's it's a fairly challenging uh, thing to deliver. The logistics of furniture is is, is tough, uh, and you know we built out this uh, really great network of of third party providers early on, and uh, they did a reasonable job, and, and in some areas continue to. However, we found that um, we're, I guess, uh, zealots when it comes to customer feedback and and incorporating that into our into the way that we that we that we evolve the business. And consistently, you know, if something went wrong, it was uh, you know eight times out of ten it was in that delivery process. And again, not not easy to to understand why. You know, you're you're 
all around giant items. There's all kinds of things that can kind of go go wrong in that uh, that process. So we really saw that as as an opportunity to uh, sort of differentiate our offering from others. Uh, furniture, I mean, our furniture is the, the physical product is fantastic, but there's there's a lot of people that sell really beautiful furniture. What, what we saw as an opportunity was to make the whole experience better and really make it easy to create uh, beautiful modern spaces. And so for us, the, the fulfillment was just such a you know, moment of truth that as the truck pulls in your uh, driveway or upside, you know, outside your, your apartment building and, and the folks um, you know, deliver to your, to your door or in your home, that whole experience really makes or breaks the, the what, what, how you feel about the brand, how you feel about your new product, all, all kinds of things. And so ultimately taking that in-house allowed us to do, uh, you know, not only deliver faster, obviously speed's an important component. Everyone uh, expects fast delivery these days, but also, and probably more importantly, deliver with uh, consistent quality of experience. And so we saw, uh, you know, in the, in the places where we now operate our, our own fulfillment network. Not only are we delivering on average, I think about three days faster than, than everywhere else, we're also delivering with significantly higher customer satisfaction and the scores are, are markedly different in those, those areas in which we are operating our own network. As, as you know, the head of marketing, it, do you try to incorporate that part of the business into how you how you market the brand? I, fulfillment's an interesting thing where it's so important, but it's only visible when it's bad, in my opinion. Like, you know, you, you can have a seamless experience and it's great, and maybe you'll remember that, but you'll really remember when it went to complete shit. So, like, <laughs> uh, uh, how, like how how do you how do you approach that? You know, is it just sort of building building a long-time customer who's had a good experience or do you do you include that in part of the bef- before sale parts of your marketing it, it, it's sort of integrated into the the before parts we, we really talk about article as the again the easiest way to create beautiful modern spaces so when we think about easy that's not only uh yeah like the on-site experience and there's that sort of um yeah, e-commerce piece of it, but it's also the, the fulfillment and the post-sale service. So we really think about fulfillment as, you know, a key part of that. And we don't necessarily call out fulfillment explicitly. Uh, however, it's, I guess, implied as part of that uh, overarching message. What I will say is that uh, a tremendous part of our business is, bu- is being built on repeat purchases mm-hmm. uh, or both repeat and uh, referrals. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the start around trust. If if you've obviously if you have a friend that's that's ordered from us and is able to sort of vouch for um, both the quality of the product and the experience, that's significantly better than anything that I can do in terms of uh, advertising. So we again pretty religiously uh, monitor our referral rate, uh, and not just sort of uh, through the standard. I guess, like, w- would you refer us to a friend kind of surveys? We uh, fairly regularly call customers and ask them specifically, you know, like, who did you refer? How did you refer them? What happened? And, and just to validate uh, sort of the, I guess, like, lower five feedback we get on a more regular basis. So it, it's something we look at really rigorously and, and find that upwards of 80% of our customers have referred us, you know, by name to a friend. And one of the beautiful things about furniture is that uh, it, it is... Uh, 
quite a social product. You know, people come to your house and they're like, oh my God, I love your new sofa. Or, <laughs> you know, they're around for a dinner party and, and the, the table is obviously the centerpiece. So there is, uh, you know, it's not really, I think, you know, oftentimes you see referral programs executed in industries where you're like, I'm not really sure uh, there's ever going to be an opportunity for, for me to, you know, refer my toothbrush to someone, <laughs> you know, like when is that conversation ever going <laughs> to sort of naturally happen? But, uh, you know, with a sofa or a table or chair or whatever, there's, there, there is that opportunity for conversation. Did you, so, you know, it makes sense, uh, a company that's many years old focusing on longtime value return customers, referrals, did that at all get tweaked, you know, beginning in March and April because there was such an onslaught of people who were just thirsty for anything that they could get in a short time? Like, how did you, you I, I imagine many probably were referred, but were some people just, they they were searching leather sofa and you had, you had the SEO in place. So how did you sort of approach that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We really think about our our job in, in marketing as acquiring customers who wouldn't have otherwise shopped with, with us. Uh, so uh, while referral and uh, retention is really important to us, we really think of that piece as uh, more just delivering on the promise that we've we've made up front. And so uh, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, focus operationally on how we how we do that, for basically fulfill the, the brand promise we've made. But really, as a as a sort of marketing team, we're focused on, yeah, exactly that. How do we bring in those those new customers, people who uh, either haven't heard of us or, or maybe have only sort of vaguely heard of us. And so, yeah, uh, you know, March, April, May were, were and up until today, really were this incredible opportunity to, to uh, win more of those those customers. So it's not so much that we uh, we shifted our thinking internally. It was more... Uh, you know, just the, I guess, wave of customers coming in. We, we had to adapt some of our sort of budget decisions and things to make sure we we were able to to capture those people. Absolutely. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys have, have you ever had a, a showroom or a physical like store? No? Nope. No. I didn't think so. So, I mean, I'm guessing now that has proven to be great because you didn't have to close any physical stores. But how are you? Is that ever part of the the timeline? Would you ever think about doing that, or sort of how do you approach any any physical parts of your of your overall marketing schema? It's not something that we've sort of categorically ruled out, uh, and, and we do think about it fairly frequently. However we've found we sort of re, when we're reevaluating evaluating any decision uh, at article is really about how do we do, deliver the most value to customers and, and how do we coming back to that how do we make it as easy as possible to create beautiful modern spaces and we think about again there's so many components to easy but a big part of it is accessibility uh, and accessibility often means you know pricing things uh, at, at an affordable uh, you know uh, price point and for us We've we haven't been able to get to a point where we can make a showroom uh, or, or a physical presence make sense from a, a financial perspective uh, without uh, you know having to impact the value proposition that we have to customers. Now, obviously, some people um, would prefer to shop in person, and that's totally fine. Uh, we do again do a lot to try to I guess uh, allay those fears through things like our thirty day. Uh, returns and exchanges. So if it shows up and you don't like it, you can send it back. 
or in fact, not even send it back. We'll come and pick it up uh, because again, how are you going to send a sofa through the mail? But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so ensuring that we're able to, I guess, like we often talk about this concept of almost bringing the showroom to you, that, that there are a lot of sort of shortcomings of a traditional showroom, you know, principal amongst which are, uh, you know, e- either it has to be giant uh, to fit all your products in it or else you're not going to have all of your products there. And also because it's such a contrived environment, right? You kind of walk into the store, there's hundreds of other people. You're kind of sitting awkwardly in this sofa in the middle of the showroom with people looking at you and sort of waiting around and whatever. And it's you know not your space. It's um, all those things. So for us, if we can bring that experience to you, but give it to you in your own home so that you're seeing, you know, not only the, the beautiful sofa, but you're seeing it alongside your other furniture uh, and things you already own, which again is a, is a bit of a challenge uh, for folks who are not, you know, necessarily interior designers. Will the sofa, uh, you know, work with my armchair that I already have? Or, uh, so helping people get over that uh, by experiencing the product, you know, for themselves in their own home for their own or living their own lives uh, is a tremendously powerful thing. So, Really, we feel like if we can continue to uh, focus on on that part of the experience, there may not need to be, uh, or there may not be a good reason for us to to go into retail anytime soon. Interesting. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I, I I feel like right now there are a lot of people I've talked with who've said, you know, maybe now might be the time just because the terms will be a little bit better because landlords are trying to get people in and. If it, if it fits right, we, it seems like you might be open to it, but probably not. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think it's really interesting watching the way that it will be and, and is right now really interesting watching the way that retail will evolve over the next, uh, physical retail will evolve over the next you know 18 months uh, in the US and, and Canada. Uh, it seems as though yeah, that, that's quite likely that you'll see if you like more generous terms from from landlords as as space in, opens up and, and there's opportunities so I, again I, I wouldn't rule it out but there's no sort of um, compelling or urgency on our part to, to kind of dive in just because it happened you know rent happens to be a bit cheaper right now absolutely you mentioned earlier that sort of the the, the biggest difficulty that you faced beginning during the the start of the coronavirus was just the difficulty with forecasting. And so now that things are kind of, uh, you know, we're not a new normal at all, but there, you know, there people are a little bit more even keeled than they were, say, three months ago. How are you? How are you approaching that? Are you? Is it just day by day? Do you think you have good forecasts for what's going to happen in in the coming months or years? How, how do you, like that must be very difficult to to sort of approach when there's just so much uncertainty about global health. It is, but I think the the important thing is to focus on what we can confidently assert or what we we sort of know or, or can reasonably assume to be true. So it's really easy to get bogged down in in any forecasting exercise in in the the unknowns and and certainly you know uh, the the health side of the the pandemic is is incredibly hard to 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 predict. So we just sort of don't basically don't bother um <laughs> you know like uh there's much smarter people and much more capable people and than, than us trying to figure that part out and so we basically take um you know take the the elements that we do understand uh we look at uh, obviously first and foremost our our first party data so what's actually going on in our business and yeah to your point we do look at it uh we're not reforecasting on a daily basis maybe but uh we're certainly looking at it 
uh, closely on a, on a weekly and monthly basis because uh, things are changing so rapidly. And, and we find that, um, you know, the best, again, in terms of things we know, the, the you know, recent, uh, recent performance is a, is a pretty good indicator of what's going to happen next. And so uh, the, the more we're able to sort of sample, if you like, that performance and, and use it to project out into the future, the, the better we can be at, at uh, getting those forecasts, at least, you know, in the, in the ballpark of being right. So do you, do you foresee there being sort of a dip in demand, given that you saw such a, a huge rise or sort of what are the dynamics in terms of what you think people are going to buy in terms of, you know, mid to higher price furniture? If you think about it as the, the sort of notion that, that e-commerce as a whole has accelerated, you know, five or 10 years, depending on who you ask, um, I, my belief is that uh, you know, we will see some of that, I guess, adoption stick and that we will continue to see uh, increased, I guess, e-commerce share of the, the furniture industry as a whole. Uh, so then really for us, uh, it's about trying to figure out what's going on in the furniture market, which I do think is uh, going to be, uh, that's a little bit less certain, I think, right now in terms of, uh, you know, you've got some pretty interesting uh, you know, stats around home uh, home buying and home starts and things going on right now, which don't necessarily seem to uh, line up, I guess, with what you'd, you'd expect. Um, and so we're watching that closely because, again, obviously furniture is a, is a category that is so closely tied to, uh, to the home. And, you know, if you're moving or building or buying or whatever, those are all those sort of uh, those moments where you're reconsidering uh, what's what's in your space? So super important for us. But um, so I guess to, to summarize, uh, we're confident that one our our offering is really strong, and that uh, we'll continue to to kind of grow as a share of e-commerce, and that e-commerce will continue to grow as a share of uh, sort of the overall furniture market. The question mark is, I guess, to what extent is that offset? Uh, or what is going to happen by in the, in the sort of total furniture market over the next, you know, eighteen months to to three years? So that leads me to my next question, which I, I know that I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are not on Amazon, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, but how does I feel? There's been an influx of people buying things online. I've, there's also been, a, I would say, a, a bigger shift of more people turning to marketplaces like Amazon for these bigger ticketed items. And so, how do you sort of what is your overall thoughts just as a company that you know is, isn't on it but that you're still competing for people who might go on it searching for for a piece of furniture is that just sort of different from the customer that you would be going for how do you sort of how do you sort of think about those dynamics when you see these bigger players also go trying to sell these kinds of products I, I think it comes back to again the, the, I'm gonna sound a bit like a broken record here but it comes <laughs> back to that that trust thing that I was talking about at the start and and that we're really focused on building a, a brand in furniture that that has uh, that trust associated with it. So, um, you know, marketplaces are, are going to uh, continue to you know win share, and and I'm sure a lot of people will turn to, to market marketplaces of various um, descriptions to to buy furniture and all kinds of other things. But there's you know a fundamental difference between. Uh, the trust you place in the marketplace place brand and the trust you place in the the sort of brand of the the product that you're buying and 
we believe we can deliver a superior value proposition through the you know focus on that end-to-end -end experience, uh, and that we can sort of you know over time encapsulate that in a brand that people you know comes to be synonymous with uh, you know quality value and and that great experience. All right, well, Duncan, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Thank you.